Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto and Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Insider. banks are broke. Oh, why are they broke? It isn't an act of God. They're broke because we have a system called fractional reserve banking, which means that banks can lend money that they don't actually have. It's theft from the taxpayer. And until we start sending bankers, and I include central bankers and politicians to prison, it will continue. another exciting episode of Thriller Insider. Today is June 8th, 2021. And we are talking, that's right, Bitcoin Miami. (laughs) That's right. This is day two of our Bitcoin conference 2021 here in Miami. Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of this stuff's already been covered. But like I said, I, I really want to just give our take on it, right? I want to give you what I think is my little kind of gift to y'all, right? I think everybody has a different experience. I think what I'm doing here is this is my experience of it. Like this is, this is what I, this is my little diary of that weekend, right? Um, this is what I want to present to y'all. One of the things I want to start off with playing is um, something that really had everybody choked up at the conference. Um, I took a picture of it and I'll put it in the show notes, but it really had everybody silent uh, for the vast majority of this talk. And it it took me by surprise. Um, uh, There was was tears shed, you know? Um, And it was the talk by Ross Albrecht. Uh, If you don't know, he's the person who um, created Silk Road and uh, if you if you listen to our Bitcoin audiobook that we've created, um, I, I've referenced him as you know just as important as Satoshi when it came to um, getting Bitcoin off the ground, um, and um, we we were able to get Lynn Albrecht uh, to do the um, Bitcoin audiobook for us. Uh, she did the forward, and we're super grateful. And I, I know Lynn very well. Um, I've, I always see her at conferences and I always say hi. And she's one of my favorite people in the world. She really is. And every time I see her, I always ask her how she's doing. And um, she just has the, she just has like, you know, 
she's just one of the most wonderful people that you'll ever meet. And so it, it really pained me to, to, to hear Russ talk, you know, at the conference. Um, it was really tough because uh, what he says, it really, it really hits home, right? Um, and so I'm going to play that for you to start off the, uh, the podcast. It's kind of a downer, but I think, I think there, there's hope there. And the reason I say there's hope is, and, and like I tell Lynn every time I see her, there's no doubt in my mind Ross is going to see um, the outside of prison one day. Like I, I fully, firmly believe that without a doubt. And um, the reason is very simple. One of these days, there will be a Bitcoiner in office. And that Bitcoiner will pardon Ross 100%. And there might have even been a Bitcoiner amongst that crowd who listened to this. Everybody was dead silent. I took a picture of it. You can see it in the show notes. Like they were dead silent when this was playing. Um, so I, I'm sure if there was somebody in that crowd of influence, um, I'm hoping, I'm praying that maybe they could do something with that, with that power of influence that they have to get Ross out. So take a listen. Yeah. 
Listen, this call is being recorded and is subject to monitoring. Heading up to decline the call or to accept, dial 5 now. If you wish to block any future calls of this nature, dial 7 now. To decline this call, hang up. Hello? Hi, Ross. It's Peter from Bitcoin Magazine. You're good to go? Yep. All right. Hello, this is Ross Eldridge. I'm calling you today from prison, from uh, a maximum security federal penitentiary. We don't have much time together today, and I don't know if I'll get another chance to talk to you like this. I'll say as much as I can, but when it's time to go, I'll have to hang up and go back to my cell. I have lost my freedom. That's what I want to talk to you about today. I want you to understand what it means to lose your freedom. But first, let's talk about Bitcoin. I was there during Bitcoin's early days. Back then, uh, Bitcoin made me feel like anything was possible. Bitcoin was open to everyone, right? That's what I love so much about it. It was... It's like it leveled the playing field. When the idea of Bitcoin really clicked for me, I got so excited. I thought, with Bitcoin, I can try to do something that actually makes a difference. And by the way, before I was put in prison, we didn't have all these different cryptocurrencies and tokens and everything. I missed all that. So to me, it's all one thing, the, the forks, the new blockchains, all of it. So when I say Bitcoin, I'm not making those distinctions. To me, it may sound kind of corny, but to me, we're all one big family. So I was excited back then, but I was also very impatient. I saw what Bitcoin could do for freedom and equality. But I didn't take the time to really understand it. I didn't fully appreciate the principles it's based on. Things like immutability and consensus and, of course, decentralization. I had so many big dreams for Bitcoin. And what's so beautiful is slowly those dreams are coming true. That's because of you. You are making those dreams a reality. You are doing what I didn't have the patience for. These last eight years now in prison, over and over I've been so impressed with how far we've come. But back then I was impatient. I rushed ahead with my first idea, which was Silk Road. Silk Road... Silk Road was a website I made when I was 26 years old, more than a decade ago now. It used Tor and Bitcoin to protect people's privacy. I called it an anonymous market. At the time, I thought, if Bitcoin makes payments anonymous and private, then what are we waiting for? Why are we sitting around talking about it? Let's put it into action. That's impulsive. That's a 26-year-old who thinks, thinks he has to save the world before someone beats him to it. I 
had no idea if Silk Road would work, but now we all know it caught on. It was used to sell drugs, and now I'm in prison. I was given two life sentences without parole, plus 40 years. I'm a nonviolent, first-time offender, but if nothing changes, I'll spend the next few decades in this cage. Then, sometime later this century, I'll grow old and die. I'll finally leave prison, but I'll be in a body bag. I got a letter the other day. It was from someone I hadn't met before. He was thanking me. He was grateful I had put Silk Road online all those years ago. He believed that Bitcoin wouldn't be where it is today if it wasn't for Silk Road. I'm not sure. For better or worse, Silk Road is part of Bitcoin's history now, but I worry that by putting Silk Road online, I made things harder for us. There's no way to know how things would have turned out differently, but I just want to say, to the extent that I made things harder for us, I'm sorry. To the extent that my actions led to drug abuse and addiction, I'm sorry. I was trying to do something good. I was, I was trying to help us move toward a... This call is from a federal prison. Sorry, this is prison. <laughs> I was trying to help us move toward a freer and more equitable world. But we all know the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? And now here I am. I'm in hell. I want you to understand what it means to lose your freedom. Let me start by telling you about the hole. Goes by many names, the, the shoe, segregation, the box. But for me, it's the hole. The hole is the prison within the prison. I once spent four months straight in the hole. Not easy for me to talk about, but I will. The hole can make you or break you, and there was a time when it broke me. It started with my mind racing out of control. I, I felt like the walls were crushing in on me, like, like I just had to get out of that cell. This lasted days. Then I started beating the walls and kicking the heavy metal door. Something... Something deep inside me cried out for freedom. I couldn't accept where I was or what had happened to me. But eventually I realized I had to get a grip. The stress was destroying me. It may sound strange, but what saved me was gratitude. But what could I be grateful for in that little cell? Well, I had to start small. Um, I had air, right? Maybe it was stale and foul, but I had air. I had water that didn't make me sick. Food came through the slot in the door every day. 
I knew I wasn't forgotten. My family, I knew someday it would be over and my family would still be there. I forgave all the people involved in putting me in prison. I had to. The, the anger I felt wasn't hurting them, but it was hurting me. So for the sake of my sanity, I, I had to let it go. I had a dream while I was in the hole, and in the dream I was free. I was in a park, and I felt this huge relief. I wasn't in prison anymore. And I got worried. Am I out on bail or something? Or are they going to put me back in? Are they after me right now? And I started trying to get away, and the, the anxiety, it just it woke me up. And there I was again, in the hole. And it was like everything that had happened to me over all these years, it all came slamming down on me at once, like life without parole, maximum security. I've been in the hole for months, and there's no end in sight. I want you to understand what it means to lose your freedom. The irony is that I made Silk Road in the first place because I thought I was furthering the things I cared about. Freedom, privacy, equality. But by making Silk Road, I wound up in a place where those things don't exist. I'm not alone. These prisons are full of people who don't deserve this. We are mothers and fathers. We are sisters and brothers. But we've been made into monsters in your eyes. We've been made less than human. And then, next to all that, there's Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Bitcoin has been transforming our world since that very first block in the blockchain. But let me tell you something. We are just getting started. Wherever Bitcoin has been embraced, anywhere in the world, freedom and equality follow. Bitcoin is the embodiment of freedom. So now, look what we have. On one side we have loss of freedom. We have despair and darkness. And on the other side, we have Bitcoin. We have freedom, quality, and hope. The two can't sit side by side, so the darkness has to be kept out of sight. It has to be ignored and forgotten. But listen, here I am. I'm crying out from that very same darkness. This is a cry for help. My mother can't do this by herself. And, and I'm crying out, not just for me, but for all of us. We need your help. We need you to care. We need you to look at the stark contrast between the freedom of Bitcoin on the one hand and what it means to be locked in a cage 
until you die. We have a choice. Today, right now, do we ignore what's happening? The loss of freedom? The dehumanization? Or do we wake up? Listen, Bitcoin is strong. Bitcoin is powerful. We are powerful. And our work is not over. It's time to wake up. It's time to take the next step. I've spent the last eight years watching Bitcoin grow up from in here. I've seen incredible innovation. I've seen inspiring courage. We didn't know how things would turn out for Bitcoin back in the beginning, but over the years, I've been continually impressed what you've accomplished. I am proud of you. And I have no doubt we can do anything we set our minds to. We are transforming the global economy. We have brought a taste of freedom and equality to far corners of the world. I know we can transform criminal justice too. And now, today, I challenge you to set your sights on the hardest problems. I challenge you to shine Bitcoin's light into the darkest places. I challenge you to set us free. I've seen several of my friends go home after years, even decades in prison. More than one overcame a life sentence. Each time it happened, I weep for joy. Seeing a person regain their freedom, seeing them reunite with their family, there's nothing like it. So beautiful, it hurts. It feels like a miracle. We need more miracles. I have to go soon. I don't want to go. I don't want to go back to that cell. I want to be there with you. It's called. You've done so much for me today. Talking with you today is the most freedom I've felt in a long, long time. Thank you. Thank you for giving me your attention. I will never forget this day. The memory of this day, this can never be taken from us. Okay. This call is from a federal prison. I'm gonna go now. Thank you. Goodbye.
interesting is um, shortly after that conversation, they moved him to the hole out of retaliation for speaking to the media. It was reported on Twitter the following day. So, um, you know, that's, that's his life, right? It's terrible. And um, it's no way to treat a human being. Um, it's, it's just terrible. But uh, like I said, I believe one day he will get out. And I believe one day that when he does get out, that's going to be a beautiful... It's going to be a beautiful image, and I can't wait to see him reunited with Lynn, uh, his mother, and um, that's going to that's going to make things a lot better. So, I'm looking forward to that day. Um, okay, with all that, let's go ahead and jump into um, our coverage of Bitcoin Day Two, right? So, there's some really good stuff here. Uh, some of the some of the highlights that I that I thought were completely fascinating you know were the obviously the bitcoin macro landscape right i think the jeff booth talk was amazing <laughs> um there was also a uh jimmy song you know i love i love hearing jimmy talk you know he's 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 one of those guys that's just constantly you know coming out with new information that's just you know, that's just uh, keeping us rethinking what a Bitcoiner is, you know, sometimes. Uh, of course, we had Guy Swan. Um, he always does a great job of moderating. Um, and I, I especially like the way he moderated this panel for the moral case for Bitcoin. Uh, there is also another panel that I really thought was really cool with Elizabeth Stark and Lynn Alden. Um, it's called Bitcoin for Billions, Not Billionaires. Uh, Elizabeth Stark, she's probably one of the most um, nicest people. Uh, I didn't get a chance to to talk to her, but, you know, I saw her around like all over the place and she was just constantly like talking to everybody. Um, and she's always smiling. Like she was like super personable with people, just like random people, like, you know, in, in the crowd and stuff. And you could you could totally see why she is extremely successful with building out the Lightning Network. And it's because she's extremely friendly, extremely personable, and um, totally see why, right? Um, so that was one of my favorite talks too as well. And then finally, we're going to end off with uh, one small step for Bitcoin, one giant leap for mankind. Um, this one, gosh, this is probably going to be one of those moments when I, when I think back of Bitcoin 2021, the Michael Saylor, you know, Max uh, coming on stage moment, that was epic. <laughs> like being there for that was 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 worth it. But what steals the show, you know, even more so than that is. Is when when Jack Mahler uh, gives this speech, I don't think. And, and, you know, and I'm not trying to compare him to this person or saying that. He's this person. I'm not trying to do that, by the way, right? I'm just telling you, I listen to enough podcasts uh, about this person. I, I listen to enough people 
uh, who cover this, who cover that space to know that this is probably what that feels like because, and, and like I said, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to say this as carefully as I can. Cause I don't want to compare him to that guy. Cause he's definitely, I, I think he's going to be, I think he's accomplished far more than that guy in his career, quite honestly. Um, you know, and I'm not trying to put that kind of pressure on Jack either, but I, I'm just saying like, this is probably what that felt like for people when they would see that guy on stage uh, give a keynote. Um, and I'm talking about Steve Jobs. Like, you know, there's so many like, you know, stories you hear about when Steve Jobs would give a keynote, he, he would, you know, do this, he would do that. His mannerisms, the way he, you know, the way he spoke, all this stuff the way the fans, the crowd loved them, all this stuff. Um, and, you know, I feel like, you know, th- th- that is very much what Jack encompasses. Like he's, he has that very similar type of um, thing where the crowd loves him. The people love him. He has his own following. There's something about the way he gives his keynote, the way his, um, his cadence is when he's talking I don't know how to explain it, but when I was watching it live, me and my and my new friend that I had just met, <laughs> um, we were just like, it was the weirdest thing. But I would say like, it was one of those things where you see this guy just give this this speech and and this keynote, and he's just killing it, and. He delivers this news in such a way that just hits you right in the heart and the gut and it changes the world. Um, that's why I say, like, I don't know who, who else to compare him to. Like, he's definitely his own person. And I definitely think he's going to accomplish far more than that guy. A hundred percent. He's already done more than that guy just by what he's done this this week, past weekend. Um so, yeah, I think I think I think Jack Mahler is is the future of Bitcoin for sure. Um, like, I know, and I know, and I know, and I know, Bitcoin is bigger than just one person. And I know he is just one person, but damn it, it feels good to have somebody like him <laughs> on Bitcoin side, right? Doesn't it? feels fucking fantastic to have somebody like him on Bitcoin side. We needed that. We needed that. So I'm, I'm going to play all of that for you now. Um, that, that last, that last keynote by Jack though, will always go down for me as one of the greatest moments I have ever seen uh, live. And I'm talking up there with <laughs> some of the greatest bands I've ever seen live. Like, seriously, it was that epic. That's why when people were shitting on it on Twitter afterwards, I was like, you weren't there. Like, you didn't feel that room. Like, you, like I was like literally like six feet from Jack. From I was on the first row. Like, I was six feet from him. You could see me in the in the video. Like, I was six feet from him, like from the stage. Um, you know, and I was just snapping pictures, taking pictures, but man, it was, it was epic. It was epic. Uh, I'm always going to remember that, that speech, that keynote, the way he, the way he delivered that, 
how I felt. It was magical. There was something magical in that building uh, when he did it. And uh, you can tell, look at the show notes. There's a picture I took where he's hugging on his family and you can see it right there. It was one of the greatest keynotes I think I've ever seen in my entire life. It was, it was amazing. Okay, let's get started with Bitcoin Miami 2021, day two. Do you know what a hustle is, Frank? That's a pig that don't fly straight. Neither do you, Frank. Hey, Tony, why the fuck would that hurt you? I brought you in. So we had a few differences, huh? No big deal. I gave you your start. I was the one who believed in you. I stay loyal to you. I made what I could on the side, but I never turned you, Frank. Never. I think when you when you look at um, the incentive, it's it's a little hard to see at first glance because there's a huge incentive for the existing system that they've got. Um, but when you think about how decentralized Bitcoin is and the implications of not being able to shut it down, the sound monetary policy that's associated with it, you can either cancel yourself out of that or you can participate in it as early as possible in order to reap the benefits of, of what that means. And um, I think when you just look across all the other alternatives that are out there and how... Uh, you know, I, when I look at Bitcoin, it's just got so much decentralization to it through the full node network. And then you can get into the proof of stake versus proof of work piece. And as far as I'm concerned, the proof of stake is just more of the same, right? Yeah. Right. It's just, <laughs> you look at the proof of work, you look at all the full nodes, 
You look at the Lightning Network that's happening, immediate clearance, any transaction size, and I'm telling my, you know, I'm looking at that from my, from my own vantage point. I'm saying, you're not shutting that thing down. That's true decentralization with a monetary policy that's going to be predictable into the future. And if you don't want to participate in that, you're, you're canceling yourself. So I think that that's the, the real key thing to kind of focus in on. When you, when you, when you kind of mentioned that, more of the same, you've been talking a lot about the, the prospect of yield curve control, whether they're doing it or not. Yeah. How does Bitcoin fix this? So for me, the thing that, like there's a lot of really interesting things that are happening with it, but the reason I was so attracted to Bitcoin early on is because my opinion is, is the, the cost of capital is completely broke. If you're stepping into the bond market, printing a bunch of fiat, and then just buying the fixed income bonds, pushing the yields lower, pushing the prices higher, and then the cost of capital for equities and everything else is constructed as a premium on top of that, like, that's a recipe for disaster because you, you're, you're, you're flirting with, are we dealing with free and open markets at that point when you're adjusting that cost of capital lower, pushing the prices of everything, real estate, equities, you name it, is going higher and higher and higher. Um, that's the concern. So it's exciting for me when I see the dollar via stablecoin kicking off 10% interest, and then I'm looking at the interest that you can go out and get in the, in the regular economy through the traditional banking system, and it's 1.5% or 2%, and going lower, trending lower for 30-plus years, okay? For me, real fast, I'm saying, is that the real interest rate? And if it is, and that's the real cost of capital, and it's double digits, and I'm comparing it to this thing over here, is everything on the planet mispriced. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think it is, <laughs> right? <laughs> Jeff, Jeff wrote my favorite book, The Price of Tomorrow. Everyone should check it out, first and foremost. I want to embarrass him with that. But um, I also want to just say that, in your opinion, Jeff, I want to ask you, what comes first, hyperinflation or revolution? <laughs> so... It, wow. <laughs> just that. I'm yeah, starting the morning off with just, with, just yeah. that. Um, so I think what people miss here is what came first, chicken or egg. Um, the, the lower interest rates for the last 30 years and constant lowering of interest rates, manipulating interest rates down, it, that caused debt, debt jubilee debt, or debt additions, more and more debt that caused we can't pay that debt was all caused by, by technology. And technology is moving faster and faster and faster. And on the other side, central banks are caught in a trap trying to make prices go up. So technology brings prices down. Uh, central banks are trying to make prices go up. Because if the system fails, it fails spectacularly. And so if you, if you think about a lot of people measure inflation from a zero rate, you shouldn't be measuring inflation from a zero rate. Right. Because technology, it's probably been negative three or four percent, maybe three percent for the last 30 years, or one percent, two percent, and now, and now it's going faster and faster. And, and so what's happening is, mathematically, the money, the, the money that you're printing, money that you're making up, is actually pushing into this, these prices. And people talk, remember, 500, trillion, or 500 billion used to be a lot, and there were marches on Wall Street. And now you're talking tens of trillions of dollars, and there's no marches. 
um, and, and tomorrow it'll be a lot more because if that stops, the entire thing resets. So you're getting further and further out on a curve and, and the tail risk is not what people think. We are, in a we are in a massively deflationary macro trend. Rates are going down. There is going to be constant easing forever um, and because if rates go up, the entire thing unwinds to the, to the ground. And that is really, that's, I wish I wasn't saying this. It's a terrible thing to say, but it's also true. Um, and, and I keep asking myself, technology is supposed to free our time. Why are we living in, 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 somewhere in, in a world where we're corrupting money, and if we have corruption in the base layer of money, we have corruption everywhere, and, and, and so everybody's on this hamster wheel working harder and harder and harder to try to keep up with this hamster wheel, um, and it's, it's, it's killing your time. And so when I, for me, when I saw Bitcoin and everything else, and I think Bitcoin is actually the potential, the best for potential for a, an easier transition. I care a lot that people get, uh, get through this because everything else, including all the other coins, will be centralized. And, and if you think it looks bad now, imagine, imagine going into the future with artificial intelligence, robotics, mm. and centralized, uh, centralized control of the state. There is no free market. And somebody can change their mind and remove your freedoms like that. If you want to grow up in that type of society, that's where this path takes us. And Bitcoin is exactly the opposite. So my... <laughs> So I'm going to pass over to Mark on that because um, when we talk about centralization, Mark's been a pioneer investing in all kinds of companies that are helping in this space, in this industry. How do you see us adopting Bitcoin on a greater scale and through what you know, technology available to us? Yeah, I, I think it's the biggest, the biggest problem we all face in the sense that you know, all day yesterday and, and the rest of the day today, we'll talk about how this is the money of, of the people, and it's about the future, and it's about global, but it's still really concentrated in a few hands, uh, and that, that needs to change. The biggest problem is what these guys have been talking about with, with the other money. You know, I'm wearing the, the shirt, keep calm, we'll print more for a reason, which is the, the plan all along has been to do just this, right? The plan since 1913, is to steal all of our wealth and hand it to a very small number of people at the top of the food chain through inflation. And look, as great as Miami is, and Miami rocks, this conference should be a little further north in Jekyll Island, because the creature from Jekyll Island is what we're fighting against. And it's not going to stop, and they're not going to stop 39% of all the dollars created in the history of our republic happened in the last 12 months. What the absolute fuck? <laughs> I mean, seriously, just let, just let that sink in for a second. And trillion. Somebody shudder just a little when I say trillion. Okay? A trillion. Y'all have to sit here with us for 31,710 years. I would promise that would be most unpleasant to listen to me for 31,000 years, okay? And you got to spend a dollar a second. A dollar a second for 31,000 years is one trillion. 
And we just passed a bill to print six trillion. So the idea that this isn't going to flow into a store of value that is hard money. Money only exists in a couple places. Gold is money, right? It is the only thing that exists in the absence of a liability. Bitcoin, the digital version of gold, which we heard the whole case for yesterday from the Winklevi, is going to replace gold, I think. Not completely, because there's physical gold. There's a use for it, right? Having some coins in your pocket. If we get the Mad Max scenario and we're off the grid and all that, there's some value there. But Bitcoin will play a bigger and bigger role and accumulate more of that store wealth because the dollars that they're going to print and the yen and the euro, because it's not just the U.S., you know, the American exceptionalism. So, you know, Americans, we're like Notre Dame football fans. We remember a past that never was, right? I'm a Notre Dame guy, and we all think we won the national championship every year. We haven't won since 88. That's a long time. But Americans think we're in charge of this. We are a small part of the Bitcoin network, sadly. We should be a bigger part, and we shouldn't be fighting it with regulation. We heard some leading revolutionaries on that front yesterday. I don't even think I answered your question, but I had fun. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. concepts is a morality of the system or the humanity of the system, whether capitalism is humane or socialism is humane, or moral or immoral. The problem with that is that moral values are individual. They are not collective. Moral values have to do with what each of us separately believes and holds true, with what our own individual values are. Capitalism, socialism, central planning are means, not ends. They, in and of themselves, are neither moral nor immoral, humane nor inhumane. We have to ask, what are their results? We have to look at what are the consequences of adopting one or another system of organization. And from that point of view, the crucial thing is to look beneath the surface. Don't look at what the proponents of one system or another say are their intentions. But look at what the actual results are. Uh, But that's not how people actually are. People have values. People have desires to make the world better, right? Like they think about legacies and about doing something that benefits the world instead of just them. So making a moral case uh, is much more about showing the product of the possibilities of what, what, what Bitcoin is, instead of saying, well, it's good for you because number go up. Number go up is great. I love number go up. 
but that's not enough for everybody, right? Uh, the, I know many of you in here are here for number go up, and that's great. But you know, you take it to the next level and show how it is a moral imperative. Um, that that's a much stronger argument, and a lot of that has to do with the current system. The current system is highly immoral. It is a cesspool of theft, corruption, and cronyism. That's what it is. And sort of turning people on to that, the murky waters that we're continuing to swim in, I think is something that we need to do as Bitcoiners to make that case. That really, you know, this, this thing isn't neutral. It's something that we really need to think hard about and evaluate from a moral perspective. Gotcha. Yeah, so I think it's important to understand what morality is. It's... It actually emerges in all animals. So if two wolves, Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot, if two wolves have a dominance dispute, they don't fight to the death. One of them gives up their neck to the winner so that they have the whole pack of wolves to take down the moose the next day. So morality actually emerges from play. And we as human beings play games with one another and our moralities emerge from the rules of the systems we're playing within. And today, the most important game in the world, which is money, it's corrupt. The rules of that game are twisted to favor a few and disfavor billions. So that actually corrupts our morality. Uh, the Austrian economists would say that the monetary standard and the moral standard are inexorably linked. So the fact that we have corrupt money in the world today is, I believe the, con the result, I'm sorry, the cause of many of the results we're seeing, like all of this social unrest throughout the world, um, all of this, these attacks on freedom of speech, this social divisiveness, I think it's all rooted in the corruption of the money, and I think it corrupts our characters and corrupts our morality. So Bitcoin is being the first man-made, incorruptible money and social institution we've ever had. It's potentially the most important invention in human history. So to follow up on that, uh, at the core, morality is about what is right and what is wrong, what is acceptable. And I think the creators of, of Bitcoin and, and the projects that preceded that, like DigiCash and other projects, they were clearly, in my opinion, thinking that what is happening right now is wrong, that we shouldn't be surveilled. We should have the right, the fundamental right to transact with anyone anywhere around the world at any time that we would like to do it uh, without being suspects of, of nefarious activities, of, of, of just doing, uh, of being bad actors. Just this presumption of guilt is, I think, at the heart of uh, fiat and what, what the current system is. And so I think they had a lot of passion behind building a future that is right, that is just, uh, a future where we all have access to our money whenever we want, um, that no one is in the way between us and our property. And they put their hearts and minds in creating something that is right. And I think money, at the end of the day, is our, is, is our stories that we tell ourselves about the future. 
We, we take money because we believe we can, pay, we can pay with it, we can pay our rent, we can pay for mortgages, we can pay for the future of our children. And I think that um, the current system is not a good story. We want to tell ourselves a story about the future that is right. And so Bitcoin and I think what it presents is, is the story that at least I want to tell myself and my kids about the future. Uh, a story that is about the freedom to transact, the freedom to have uh, access or to build my wealth the way that I see it without uh, censorship, without interference, just a future that is right. So you bring up in that that we want to own our money. And like, there's something about the nature, like that's kind of the fascinating thing about Bitcoin is that it's an independent system of ownership. Like there is no, there's no authority telling you that you own this thing. Bitcoin is the authority. And essentially everywhere else in the world, we don't have that. Like that's, that's completely, everything that we own, we own because some authority higher up the ladder says that this is ours. And if they stop saying this is ours, it's basically not anymore. That independence is completely missing until Bitcoin. What is it about ownership that is connected to morality, about property rights? Why is that so integral? Mm. Well, property rights are, are essentially like the most basic human right, if you think about it. Uh, there is no other right without property rights. Uh, you, know, you think about something like freedom of speech. It doesn't make sense unless there's property that you're talking about. Uh, it's because we have public land that we have to even discuss things like freedom of speech. You do not have the right to come into my home and yell at me, right? Because it's my home. It, it, it's my property. Um, the thing about property rights is that uh, there, there are two sort of like legal ways in which you recognize property rights. There's, there's uh, positivism, which says that the government gives you the right to do X, Y, or Z, or have X, Y, or Z, or whatever. Um, and there's the natural law philosophy, which says that you know, we, we have these rights already, and that the government can't take them away. That is indeed what this country was founded on. Right? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And you know, we are endowed with the right to liberty, you know, um, property, and all, you know, all these other rights. But property rights are at the core of what it means to own something. And if you don't own something, then you get into positivism. And every evil authoritarian regime has, uh, that, that we think of as evil has been positivist. You think about Nazi Germany or Soviet Union or any of these places where they commit these atrocities. You know, uh, the, the moral sort of case for positivism comes from the government decides what is moral. It is a might makes right philosophy. A natural law philosophy means that you actually have rights already and that the government is there to protect them and not take them away or give them or do whatever. Bitcoin is a natural law money. The dollar is a positivist money and that's the big difference. It's one is used to control, one is there to give you freedom. That's it.
I think it's really important to clear up this common misconception of what property is. Like we always think it's the car or the stock certificate or whatever the item, but it's actually the relationship between the owner and that item. It's the exclusively acknowledged relationship that you have rights and responsibilities to that piece of property. Now traditionally we had to preserve this property with a monopoly on violence. We had to have guys with guns saying, hey, don't take his car, it belongs to him. But Bitcoin's the first property right that exists metaphysically, as Jimmy said, and it exists independently of this monopoly on violence. This is so important for civilization because if you can't invest your time and energy creating something, knowing that you can own it, that you have the rights and responsibilities to that asset, then we cannot trade favors with one another and we cannot create the wealth we see in the world. Everything you see around you is created through trade. Like we create wealth by specializing in trading with one another. If that trust arrangement with property breaks down, civilization breaks down. And every time a dollar is printed, that is a violation of private property rights. Dollars are just a claim on all the stuff. So you print a dollar, you're taking stuff from the hands of one group and giving it to another. You're not creating any new wealth in the world whatsoever. So at the end of the day, property is about a relationship between yourself and your time, right? How can I invest my time knowing that I can own that? So the fact that there's a central bank, a centralized institution that can print money while the the rest of us are forced to use, it means they're stealing our property and stealing our time. This is the problem in the world. This is the core that Bitcoin fixes. It can't be inflated, can't be confiscated, perfectly preserves property rights. Sometimes I feel so happy Sometimes I feel so sad Sometimes I feel so happy But mostly you just make me mad Baby, you just make me mad If everybody who owns Bitcoin would be actually a node in the system, I could relate to that project. I could understand that you want to disintermediate, that you would get what, that you would want to get rid of banks, even of central banks. Although as a Bundesbanker, I'm not allowed to say this. But for the sake of the argument, yes. You, I can understand that you want to get rid of banks, but now you are using Bitcoin exchanges. Are you crazy? So one of the things I'm really passionate about is the network effects that come along with Bitcoin. A lot of people say, okay, well, we're going to build a better Bitcoin because it has this feature or it does this better or that better. But actually, Bitcoin is the most secure cryptocurrency. It has the most hash power backing it up. And it has this massive network effect. And Lint, by the way, If anybody has not yet read it, you need to read Lynn's piece on Bitcoin network effects. I've sent it to like all of my friends, so definitely check it out. But Lynn, you've been exploring Bitcoin you know, network effects. You wrote this incredible article, The Idea of Metcalf's Law, and I'd love to hear your perspective on why this increased your conviction in Bitcoin as an investment asset and as a technology. 
Absolutely. And so I, I began covering Bitcoin a little bit back in late 2017. Uh, and so I, for people that don't know me, I cover multiple asset classes. I covered uh, equities, commodities, all sorts of different, uh, you know, anything that basically has macro significance, I cover. Uh, and I initially covered Bitcoin back in late 2017. And I passed on it for a couple reasons. One is it already had that giant price run up. And then two, I was, you know, I was basically exploring Bitcoin, still learning. And I had concerns about its network effect compared to all the other cryptocurrencies out there. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the other types of bear assets, right, there's, there's physical cash. And that's, of course, backed up by the, the force of a government. They can basically mandate that it be spent uh, and, and basically accept it as legal tender. Uh, then there's precious metals, and there's only a handful of them. Uh, and so with, with, with Bitcoin, the, you know, the, the big risk there is that because it's an open source uh, you know, uh, protocol, all these other ones can come and copy it. And so my main you know, thing I was watching was how strong is the network effect? How, how able is it to withstand this, the ocean of other competitors? Uh, and, but as I watched it over the next couple of years, I saw the price consolidate. I saw the network effect continue to be built out. So all of the institutional uh, uh, custody solutions, uh, better and better uh, hardware, so better, better wallets, better multi-signature security solutions, and just seeing the strength of the community and how separate the community was from the, the, the sea of other things out there. Uh, and so over time, I, I, my conviction kept growing and growing. And by the time we had that early 2020 you know, liquidity issue. Uh, that's when I finally said, you know what, I'm, I'm in. And so, you know, it's been, a, it's been a wild ride learning about all the different aspects of Bitcoin. And one of the things I focus on is monitoring over time the, the network effect and the continued growth of the protocol. And, you know, eventually that, that initially started on the base layer, just kind of analyzing its hash rate, analyzing how much users it has, the market capitalization. But that eventually extended to uh, the Lightning Network and the layer two. And that's where Elizabeth has been super helpful. I, I've relied on her for answering some of my technical questions. Uh, and what I find interesting is that in some ways the layer two aspect actually has it's more reliant on the network effect than even the base layer because the key limitation of, of the second layer is liquidity. And the more liquidity that, that develops over time, and specifically liquidity in the right locations across the network and the, the most, like, the, the, the real type of liquidity rather than just how many sats are on the Lightning Network. But the stronger that gets over time, the more and more usable that network it gets and the more it, it entrenches itself uh, in, 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 you know, as a, as a protocol of value. And so that's been super helpful. So yeah, people can read that article if they want the full thoughts. But that's, you know, it's been really important to, to, you know, basically monitor the network effect and see it continue to grow. And that's, of course, it's separate than just the, the price fluctuations from whatever billionaire is tweeting in any given day. The, the actual underlying fundamentals of, of use cases and integrations and technology improvement is, is the key thing to keep focusing on for Bitcoin success. And all the people here uh, working on it, they're the ones that are just, you know, responsible for continually pushing it forward in this, in this beautiful decentralized way. One uh, of the really interesting things you say in your article is how in order to break a network effect, something needs to be 10x better. And there's the concept of Metcalf's law, which as each individual user is added to the network, the value of that network grows exponentially, which I think is extremely significant. But Lynn, you've also talked a little bit about 2017. How many people here remember the uh, events of 2017 in the Bitcoin world? I'd love to just briefly hear how did that change your perspective in terms of the network effect? 
Well, I mean, I was kind of watching that part from an outsider. So seeing Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash split was part of my initial concern about the network effect. Um, but then, you know, we saw that answered by the market over the next uh, few years. Uh, and, you know, going back to the, the 10x thing, I mean, that was Jeff Booth's original um, kind of statement that, you know, why basically in order to for a smaller competitor to outperform an, uh, an existing network effect, you can't just be a little bit better. You have to be 10 times better. And so, for example, when you see Bitcoin had just by far the most security, the most hash rate, the best decentralization, all these other technologies claiming to be better technology are just not basically putting enough pieces together to even have a chance of coming close to that existing entrenched uh, power that continues to grow in this, in this path-dependent way that it has. Uh, and, you know, we're starting to see that really extend to even emerging markets, right? So we often, often the media has a very developed uh, market view of Bitcoin and focuses on it as like a casino asset. But really, we actually see some of the, the most kind of humanitarian, impactful use cases in emerging markets. Uh, and that's another reason I was, I was happy to be on stage here with Elizabeth, because that's what her uh, company really enables. So we hear a lot about the consumer apps that are out there, but a lot of them rely on the underlying technology that Lightning Labs puts together. So maybe you can talk a little bit about basically how your technology stack is, is really helping uh, Bitcoin in emerging markets. Yeah, so over the past year, we've heard a lot around the narrative of number go up technology, right? But... Uh, we in the Lightning community and at Lightning Labs are really passionate about the concept of number of people go up and bringing this technology to the next billion people because that's really what's going to make Bitcoin strong you know, as a technology and as a community. So I've just been blown away by the creativity we've seen within this community. Um, there are so many great examples. For example, uh, Bitcoin Beach in El Salvador. A lot of community members, Peter McCormack, Miles Suter, Jack Mullers, have been down there working with a community where they're living in this circular economy. They're living on Bitcoin and Lightning because they don't have access to, say, the credit card networks. You know, they may have to travel out to get uh, to a bank to send a remittance. And the potential of this technology is so massive globally around the world for that other six billion, right? Lately, we've heard a lot from, say, very rich individuals that say, you know, Bitcoin is bad because of this or that FUD. But I really care deeply about bringing this technology to the people that may not be allowed on Twitter. They may, may not even speak English, but it's helping them in their day-to-day -day lives. Another great example, um, there's an entrepreneur named Cal Casa. Uh, my friend Alex Gladstein has been writing a lot about Bitcoin usage in Africa over the Lightning Network. He's using Lightning to send payments back to Ethiopia. Instant, you know, extremely low fee. He's able to pay people and communicate with them using the Lightning Network. There's also an incredible app called Stack, stackwork.com, where people can earn sats over Lightning anywhere around the world. It's open, it's permissionless. It doesn't matter where you are, you know, equal access to earn money. And this is the true potential of this open source network that this enables. So we've seen a whole host of these use cases. They're only starting now. And the incredible developer community, so we at Lightning Labs, are building infrastructure for developers to build on top of. We've had hundreds of applications, hundreds of companies building on this technology. And right now, it's, it's only the beginning of, of a huge amount of emerging market use cases.
talk to, to young people, I'm, I'm talking about 15 year olds or, or, or even 20 year olds, and, he, and you, ask them, you ask them about the future, they won't, they won't talk to you about flying cars or, or shiny buildings and no hunger. They will talk to you about nuclear war, they will talk about pests, about climate catastrophes, about, I mean, when did, did our vision of the future change from something beautiful to something so dystopic? And, uh, and I, but, but at the same time, we have to remember that we are the, we are, we are, we have, we build our own future. It's not, it's not, the, the future is not imposed on us. I mean, we, we build, we human beings, we build our future. So why, why, why would, why do we have to resignate ourselves to have a dystopic future if we can build the future that we dreamt when, well, at least when I was a kid, and probably some of you were too. And uh, so I think, I think Bitcoin as being the main uh, cryptocurrency in the world, it's being uh, solves a lot of problems. No uh, oversupply. It, it, it doesn't. It's not in the hands. You know, there's a lot of inequality that comes from from uh, the the central banking system because they 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 pour new money in, but they choose what, where that new money goes to. But nobody. But everybody pays the price of having their money being less of of the quantity of of, of the total amount of money. So. Bitcoin, it's technology, it's it's the future, it solves a lot of things, it's it's very well thought of, and it's being supported by a lot of people that, that want to see a better world and a better future and a lot of innovators and a lot of talent. So we want to support that too. And we're not, we, we don't, I mean, I, I could be, I could support it by being a Bitcoiner and put, you know, you know laser eyes in, in the picture. But but we want we want not only to support it, but we want also to for to demonstrate that we can that the world can benefit from it. Central banks are increasingly taking actions that may cause harm to the economic stability of developing countries and emerging markets. This is a huge deal and a huge huge problem. The large scale printing of dollars by the Federal Reserve has an unintended spillover that's drastically, drastically impacting the quality of life of those less privileged and those that need help in developing and emerging markets. And we're facing unprecedented times, check all the data you want, that we haven't seen for a century. Hidden inflation causes rising rates, and it crushes emerging markets. The kid I went to high school with is going to lean over a bar in Manhattan and drink a $35 old-fashioned and tell me Bitcoin doesn't matter? Privileged fucking asshole. This is real, and it's happened. And it's happening now, and it's really scary. For those of you that aren't from the US, aren't from Europe, aren't from the UK, live in a developed world, you're tremendously scared. The effects from major country policies 
will hit emerging countries economically and financially, both. And it's a huge, huge problem. It's a huge problem. Bitcoin fixes this. Bitcoin fixes this. We now have an asset class that has a fixed supply. And the issuance of that is known. It was known when the asset was issued first. The monetary policy is set and protected by a distributed network. There's no central point of failure in this asset. It's open, it's global, it's permissionless. It works the same in a country that's in the developed world as it does in New York City. This network carries no bias. It improves things like remittance because a lot of the GDP of this developed world is sending money back home. It lowers transaction costs and ultimately improves transaction scalability and financial inclusivity. And so I founded this company called Strike. You may know it, you may not. But the whole thesis behind the company is to take advantage that Bitcoin fixes this. We want to make cross-border payments free. I didn't launch in Europe yet. I want to make cross-border payments free to solve the remittance problem and the financial inclusivity problem and the absolute mess that the Federal Reserve is causing to those that need it most. El Salvador is a great example. It's a country that uses the dollar because in a civil war they lost their own currency. It's a country where over 20% of the GDP is inbound remittance. It's how capital is influx into the economy. However, of that GDP, fees can be upwards to 50%. And the true crime is that there's over 2 million Salvadorians that live in the United States. And people are leaving because of the economic instability and the lack of economic support. The lack of economic opportunity. What that does is it causes individuals to rely on crime and violence. And it ruins the security of the country. And it's generated a tremendous immigration problem. But if you rewind those steps, if you can fix the money, you can fix the world. If, if we can provide economic stability, economic opportunity, financial inclusion, and if we can build an asset that is defended by an open distributed network, and we have cyber hornets that will fight on that hill and die on that hill and protect it, and we can fix that, then they won't have to result to crime and violence. They won't be subject to, to the intermediary financial system that's taking 50% of their remittance. They won't have immigration problems and they can love the country that they were born in. And I remember we built the first MVP and my CBO, who's the most successful guy, he's so smart, it's like, all right, let's launch in Europe. And I was like, you're out of your mind, man. I gotta go to El Salvador. That's what this is all about. This is all about helping those that need it. I'll, I'll, I'll beat TransferWise later. And, and I went. 
I went and I lived there. I lived there for almost three months. Sorry. <laughs> um, I, tr- I tried to collect a remittance payment. I couldn't do it. The ATM didn't work. It was a lot of dirt roads. And uh, it was sad. It just wasn't a lot of hope. I gave talks, I talked to the kids. I told them, man, we got this. Bitcoin's here, we got this. And uh, I'll tell one story, there's a guy, his name's Chimbera, and uh, I spent a few days with them, it was my first week there, and he sat me down, and I said, you know, my, my grandfather was a fisherman, and my dad was a fisherman, and I thought I was gonna be a fisherman. I'm not like you, you got a Chase bank account, you get a debit card, I fish, nothing more, nothing less, until Bitcoin, man, like I got hope. I scan the same QR codes you do. When Bitcoin goes up 10%, Michael Saylor makes a lot of money, so do I, so do I. Chimbear's never had a bank account, but he's got a Bitcoin wallet. Chimbear's never had a savings account, but he's got a hardware wallet. Chimbera saw that this is financial inclusion, that this is a network and a monetary system that doesn't hold any bias and there's no intermediary that could tell him that he's not allowed. And we did something amazing here. And we were onboarding 20,000 Salvadorans a day and most of them didn't have bank accounts. And... And, uh, boy, we were, uh, remittance was free. Remittance was instant. Lightning Network works, man. The Lightning Network works. And uh, in real time, we were improving the GDP of the country. (laughs) And so then I got a message on behalf of the president of the country. Uh, And he wanted to talk, and I called my dad. Just gonna piss my pants. Um, but we talked. This guy's name is Yusuf, and we talked about life. We talked about anime. <laughs> we talked about how to provide a high quality of life to everyone in the world. About financial inclusivity. About human freedoms and where we lost them and how we can reinstill them. We talked about the world we want to live in and the fact that we build the tools that shape the world that we end up living in. And I met more of the government. I became friends with the security guards. (laughs) It's a big rifle. Um, And they dropped some really heavy stuff on me. Over 70% of the active population in El Salvador doesn't have a bank account. They're not in the financial system. They had a huge problem of financial inclusivity and providing their citizens with basic human freedom. And so they asked me to help write a bill and that they viewed Bitcoin as a world-class currency and that we needed to put together a Bitcoin plan to help these people and give them hope and give them a quality of life 
and that you can live where you're born in. You don't have to leave. And when you send money home, they're not going to take fucking half of it. And I worked really hard and I lived there and I got to know the community and I made friends that I hope will be at my wedding someday. And uh, so with all that being said, I'd like to invite now someone I've spent some time with to share a message. My name is Ajit Bukele and I'm president of El Salvador. Great ideas are beautiful and have great power. But like most beautiful things, they can also be more fragile than we think. When I was a kid, we thought about the future and we were delighted by its possibilities. We couldn't wait for it to happen and be part of its creation. But now, ask almost anyone what they think about the future and they will say something along the lines of nuclear war, climate catastrophe, hunger, pestilence, the death of life. We didn't take care of the beautiful idea that we create our own future. That we as humanity can do almost anything that we imagine our ingenuity, what separates us from other species. In El Salvador, we are trying to rescue this idea and start the design of a country for the future, using the best ingredients that makes us who we are, while using sensibility to find the best examples of ideas from history and around the world. I believe Bitcoin could be one of these ideas. That is why next week, I will send to Congress a bill that will make Bitcoin a legal tender in El Salvador. In the short term, this will generate jobs and help provide financial inclusion to thousands outside the formal economy. And in the medium and long term, we hope that this small decision can help us push Maryland at this time of week into the right direction. I encourage politics to leave a legacy for my country. But while doing it, and by working with like-minded people, maybe we can help create a legacy for the world. got me a gift. He got me a gift, a soccer jersey. It's pretty sick. I want to read uh, my favorite part from the proposed bill. Central banks are increasingly taking actions that may cause harm to the economic stability of El Salvador that in order to mitigate the negative impact from central banks, it becomes necessary to authorize the circulation of a digital currency with a supply that cannot be controlled by any central bank and is only altered in accord with the objective and countable criteria. So as of now, El Salvador is set to be the first Bitcoin country and the first country to make Bitcoin legal tender and treat it as a world currency and have a Bitcoin on their reserves. Strike is going to be opening an innovation headquarters in El Salvador. A block stream is involved, which we'll learn about later. And uh, a lot of companies in the space are going to come um, because a country that supports and fosters innovation is a company that this community is going to stand behind 
I can build any feature I want, and the government wants innovation. They want us to improve Bitcoin, and I don't have to go get a fucking bit license. Uh, I'm also going to be open sourcing all the work I did. And uh, it's going to be called Bitcoin for Countries. And any country that needs help, download it from the fucking internet. (laughs) And you can contact me. I don't know what camera's filming me, but you call me if you need help. I'm not launching in Europe. I'll be there. We die on this hill. I will fucking die on this fucking hill. So, today, a country plugs in into open monetary system and gives their citizens hope. Today, country chose Bitcoin as a currency with a supply that cannot be altered by a central bank. Today, humanity takes a tremendous leap forward in reinstilling human freedom and financial inclusivity. And today, I hope we all can celebrate the resilience and strength of humanity and the direction that we're bending humanity towards. Today's a really special day. Oh, I'm sorry. Um... This is because everyone in this room, man, don't let people tell you otherwise. That you're mean on the internet, that you made a meme that offended somebody. This is all the code we wrote, all the PRs we reviewed, all the Twitter threads that defended nonsense. I didn't see Dogecoin in this presentation one fucking inch. This is this, is this community. They can come after me. They can come after any individual. I'll die on this hill, but they can't stop this idea. And all the individuals, everyone in this room is going to fight for what's right. And this is, this is why we're all here. And it's so important. And I hope you all can get out the shower and look yourself in the mirror and say, you're improving humanity. And don't you dare let anyone tell you otherwise. There's people out there that need help. And today they got help. And this is a tremendous day for humanity. It's a tremendous fucking day. And everyone in this room should be proud. Well, my clicker's dying, so I don't have my next slide. But I'll end it. The reason I labeled the talk the way I did is because uh, I think that this is one small step for Bitcoin. It's not a big step for Bitcoin. It's just another node on the network. It's another wallet. Just another... President's just another Bitcoin hodler, just like all of us. The network doesn't know who he is. The network doesn't give a fuck. And if he gets mad at the network, the network's not going to flinch. He mines an invalid block. My node won't accept it. It's a small it's a small step for Bitcoin. It's a small step for Bitcoin. But it's a giant step and a giant leap for humanity. And the fact that there are people that needed hope and they found it in Bitcoin and this community's fought for this moment and I wanted to share it with you guys and I'm so proud of everybody in this room and 
we got a lot of work to do, but I hope today you find solace in knowing that you help those that haven't been helped in maybe 250 years. So, so I'm done. I, uh, the clicker's done. I'm way over time, but I fucking love you guys, man. I'm so proud of everybody in this room. And look.
not gonna lie, that that uh, that talk at the end with Jack, that that one had me tearing up, man. I mean, there's a lot of people tearing up. Um, you know, and then you know, I had, I had met some people at the at the conference, and a lot of them were from you know South America, and um, we we went to the to the media um, area after the conference and we were hanging out there while our stuff was charging and we were talking about the impl implications of all this and what this means. And um, some of the people were from different parts of South America and they were telling me that, you know, if El Salvador does this, then, you know, that's going to put pressure on these other countries to do the same as well too. And then now it's being reported that other countries are looking at Bitcoin and, you know, Jack is, is getting uh, DMs and, and emails from other countries um, that want to do this as well, too. So this is this is really this is really cool. Like this is going to change a, a lot of stuff, uh, not only geopolitically, but it's this is that first domino. And, and this is Bitcoin's inevitable. And I think people are slowly starting to realize now Right. So you have these nation states. They're slowly going to start realizing just how inevitable Bitcoin really is. And slowly but surely, people will wake up to the idea of this and uh, they're either going to get on board or they're going to get left behind. And that's just the way it's always been when it comes to Bitcoin. So um, one of the other things that... Um, that, that Jack touched on was the fact that um, they were going to send out the bill, you know, this week. Uh, well, they did. Uh, it got passed today, this evening. And as of as of tonight, 62 members of the legislature voted in favor of the bill. 19 people opposed and three were absent. Um, but there you go. <laughs> The bill will mandate all businesses to accept Bitcoin for goods or services, but the government will act as a backstop for entities that aren't willing to take on the risk of volatile, you know, Bitcoin. A trust that the government will set up, you know, a development bank of El Salvador to instantly convert Bitcoin to U.S. dollars and will assume merchants risk. Uh, it will hold about $150 million in the trust fund. So it, it even backs up the people that don't want to participate. But it, it also says you have to accept Bitcoin as payment. It's a mandated currency. Uh, so pretty cool. It's pretty freaking cool. And um, like, you know, like a lot of people were saying afterwards, this is going to draw a lot of businesses. This is not only going to be good for El Salvador, but this is going to be good for Latin America. Um, this is going to be good for a lot of a lot of people. Um, that are struggling down there. Um, and this is going to make a lot of those other countries fall in line and hopefully make a change. And who knows? <laughs> Ten years from now, we could be looking at the financial, the biggest financial capital of the world, El Salvador. <laughs> I mean, you never know, right? I mean, it's, it's crazy to think, but if Bitcoin keeps going in this trajectory that we know it's going to go, gosh, I mean, sky's the limit. Um, and and so when, when, I, when, I, when I see this stuff, I, I think to myself, I'm like, man, I really wish sometimes we had 
we had that kind of vision here in the States, right? But we don't. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't. We just have to wait for them to catch up or die. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Seriously, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't follow that shit, but I don't know. Okay. If you would have told me there would have been a country to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender, I would not have believed you. <laughs> I would have said maybe next bull run, but not this bull run. It's crazy to think this happened. Fucking Jack, man. That kid's unreal. That kid's unreal, man. That kid's special. He's really, 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 really special. You know, what we do here, what everybody does in the Bitcoin space with contributions, with whatever we do, memes, podcasts, or, you know, translations, write-ups, whatever it is you do, it's, it's contributing, right? It might seem insignificant, but it's contributing to the greater ecosystem, to this hive mind. And that's special. That's really special, right? Like, that's only something that Bitcoin has. We're not out here shilling fucking tokens. We're not out here fucking shilling fucking projects. We're out here trying to change the fucking world for the better, and that's what we did. It's fucking awesome. See you next time.